All right. Well, hey, we are in part two of a series called The Art of Better Neighboring. Uh, we started this last week, and um, what, we, what I said was that uh, every once in a while, usually at least once a year or so, a lot of times we do this in the summertime as a church, we come back to this idea, this idea of what does it look like to love our neighbors. We, we want to be really, really good at making sure we keep the main thing the main thing as a church, that we keep what's most important, that we keep our priorities set, and we, and we don't kind of wander off and lose focus on what God's called us to do. And you know, call us a little bit crazy, but as Christians and followers of Jesus, we think when we're like, hey, what, what, what's the main thing? What's most important? We just kind of think we should go with Jesus on that because when a guy predicts his own death and resurrection and pulls it off, we're like, okay, whatever you say, I'm, I'm going to do that. And, and so he was pressed on this question at one point by a teacher of the law that asked, hey, what's the most important commandment? What's the greatest thing that I could possibly do? If you could boil everything down to one singular command, what would it be? And Jesus, without hesitation, is like, well, that's easy. It's love God with everything you got, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. At which point I would imagine that the guy was a little confused. He's like, ask for one, not two. And Jesus says, I know, I gave you one. That there, there's something about this command, the two parts of it, that they're not separable. Uh, that, that if you're a person of faith, like a follower of Jesus, it's not possible for us to say, I love God, but then that not overflow into our lives and the way that we love and care about the people around us. So we love God and we love our neighbor. And we started talking about this idea. Um, I put forward this idea that if, if we want to change our communities for the better, if we want to change our world for the better, if we're, if we're tired of it, it's like, man, we want, we want our communities to be safer and, and people to be able to flourish and there to be opportunities for everyone. And, and we're tired of the division and the hatred and all these things. Like if we want to actually see that happen, the best way to do that the most effective way to do that, the most practical way to do that, like the way to do it that doesn't feel so overwhelming, like how can I possibly make a difference, is by simply being better neighbors. If just those of us that are like Christians, that are followers of Jesus, would take that seriously and say, you know what, we're going to love our neighbors better. We're going to be better neighbors. The world would begin to change because not only would we have a great influence, but that kind of neighboring thing is infectious. I actually heard a story of this already this week that came out of our church. There was a member of our church who had a neighbor who has not been able to mow their lawn the entire year so far because of just, I think, some health concerns and different things. And so it's like a hay field. And he saw him struggling out there to mow the lawn with like a little push mower that you get, um, you know, like, at, like a hardware store. And for me, I, I instantly cringe because you know how I feel. Some of you know how I feel about lawn mowers. And I'm like, no, get, no, 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 you got to get a real mower. But like he's trying to mow the yard and he can't mow the yard. And so this, this, this gentleman who's a part of our church is like, we're going to go and get a couple friends and go mow this guy's yard for him. And so that's great in, of, in and of itself. But then a neighbor down the road who had no idea what was going on saw what these other neighbors were doing and he joined in the fun with his zero turn and they mowed the yard together because it's infectious. Because being a better neighbor actually makes a difference. And so that's what we're talking about. And we're going to get really, really literal and really, really practical with it. Uh, because the idea of, well, go love your neighbor, sometimes we turn that great commandment into like the, just the great catchphrase or the great metaphor or like, I love my neighbor in my heart. It's like, what does that even mean? Okay? Like, you just, it's like, well, what about loving them in real life? Or, or sometimes... We'll do this thing where we'll, we'll be like, hey, everyone's my neighbor, and certainly everyone is my neighbor, but I use that as an excuse to not love the people closest to me, because sometimes it's a lot easier to be like, well, you know, I sponsor a kid across the world, or we did a, a short-term mission trip, we did those things. It's like, but what about the guy that lives right next door? Well, you know, I'm loving these other people, okay? Don't bother me with that. I'm loving these other people. So we're saying, hey, what if, you know, all that other stuff's important, and we, we love, like, missions work, and we partner with Compassion, and we support kids, and we do all those things, but for this series, what if we get really, really specific and ask the question, what does it look like to love our actual neighbors? So that's what we're, we're talking about, and we are giving you some tools to do that in this series. If you were here last week, you got one of these little magnets. 
It's got a little yellow house in the middle. It says, you are here. That is your house. These eight boxes around it, these eight houses that are around it represent the eight homes that are closest to you. And I understand in a room like this and watching online, that may look really different. For some of you, that may be like someone who shares a duplex, someone who shares an apartment complex, someone who lives next door or across the street. And for some of you, that may be a mile down the road. As I said in the volunteer service, a country mile. I don't even know what a country mile is, but it's longer than a regular mile. That's all that I know. It doesn't matter what that looks like. Who are the closest people to you? So we want you to take this. We want you to, this is crazy. I know, and for some of you, you're like, I don't think I can do that, but I promise you, you can. We want you to actually learn their names. Be like, hello, my name is, you know, I'm sorry that we've lived next to each other for three years and we've never introduced ourselves. I'm, I'm just saying, like, I am in that club, all right? There are many of my neighbors that I don't know. And get to know them and get to know their story. And then you're going to smack this magnet on your fridge. And every day when you're in the fridge, because if you're like me, you're in the fridge 87 times every day, you're going to see it and you're going to remember those people. You're going to pray for those people. And so if you didn't get one of these last week, uh, we've got more. So on your way out the door today, make sure you get one of these magnets. But it comes with a catch that if you're going to take a magnet, you're going to do the homework assignment and you're going to get to know your neighbors and you're going to figure out ways to love them. So that's where we're going. Um, Today, I want to start talking about probably... One of the biggest, if not the biggest, obstacles to doing that. In fact, what we're going to talk about, I would actually argue, is the biggest obstacle to doing anything significant in our lives. Like, it doesn't matter if you're like a Christian follower of Jesus or you don't know where you're at, you're still trying to figure all of that out, you're exploring. No matter who you are, um, like this next thing, like anything significant in your life, and again, as a follower of Jesus, loving God and loving our neighbors, like the most significant thing we can do, but doing anything significant in life this is the thing that more often than not comes up as the reason why I can't, and that's the area of time. I'd love to do it. I just don't have time. I'd love to pursue that opportunity. I'd love to, to, to chase that thing down. I'd love to explore that opportunity, but I, I just don't have time to do it. And this plays out, right? Maybe you've had these conversations with yourself. Man, I'd really love to go back to school, but I just don't have time. I, I, I'd love to, I, I've always had this dream to start a business or to be an entrepreneur or do this thing, but I just, I don't have time. You know, I, I wish that I could, I need to work on my physical health, I need to eat better, I need to exercise, I need to get more sleep, but I just, I just don't have time, I'll sleep when I'm dead, I guess. Right? I, I, I want to be able to spend more, like, real quality time with my family and, and create memories and do those things, but I don't know where I'm going to fit it on the schedule. I, I wish I had some time for myself. Like to actually, you know, just decompress and to work on me and to breathe a little bit, maybe have a hobby, but I don't know where I'm going to fit that in as it relates to church and stuff. I don't know how many conversations I've had with people like, man, I really want to grow in my faith and, and, and start like doing these personal disciplines of time every day with Jesus. And, and, and like maybe, I feel I hear you guys talk about serving in the church and serving in the community and getting in a community group and how faith comes alive in that context. And I want to do that, but I'm just so busy every, every night of the week. I just don't have time. Or as it relates to what we're talking about in this series, I think, you know, I think you're right. Like loving your neighbor sounds great. That'll make the world a better place. And, and getting to know them by name and spending time with them. But I don't have time. I'm too busy. I don't have the bandwidth. I've got so much going on. And I'm not saying that's not true because the, the reality is it is actually true. I, I probably guarantee for every person in here, you are feeling that. Like, yes, my schedule is maxed out. And I'm go, go, go all the time. But I just kind of want to do a little thought experiment with you for a minute and think about how crazy that is. If I told you, For those of you who are old enough to have been alive 20 years ago, and I know some of you aren't, or old enough to be like cognizant of what's going on around you 20 years ago, if I were to like 20 years ago, if I came to you and said, I'm I'm coming to you from the future, let me tell you what the future is like. In 20 years, you'll be able to make phone calls from anywhere you want. Like you actually, you're going to carry around a phone in your pocket and and not, you know, not like a flip phone. It's like a computer, basically. You're going to carry like a little mini computer. You can call people whenever you want. You can make work calls and personal calls when you're in the car, when you're waiting for an appointment. And actually, you don't even have to call people. 
Like, you, you, you can just send them this little, this little message, okay? This is 20 years ago, so you'd be like, it's like having AIM in your pocket, okay? Or AOL Instant Messenger, for those of you that don't know what that is. It's like having, like, you can just do that whenever you want, and people can respond back to you, like, at their own convenience, which, by the way, okay, tangents, I do tangents. That's the point of a text message, y'all. So if you text me and I don't text back immediately, it's like, that's the point of a text message. I'll text you when I'm available and then I forget and text you back like two days later and I apologize, okay? I apologize for that. But it's like, you'll be able to do that at your own convenience. You can, you can send email while you're riding in the car, while you're waiting on an appointment. You can do all that stuff. In fact, you'll be able to take meetings with people on like computer screens. And actually, any screens. We have screens everywhere. You can see, hear people's voices and see their faces. You don't even have to go to physical meetings anymore. And forget about just work stuff. You're like personal life in the future you won't even have to like pay your bills. I mean, you'll have to pay your bills, okay? Pay your bills. But you won't actually have to physically like get your checkbook out and like, okay, it's, it's that time of the, the week, like, every other week or the month, we're going to pay bills. Like you can just automate them. All your bills will be paid for you. Like all your banking stuff, it's all automatic. You don't, you don't have to take the time to do that. You don't even have to go shopping for groceries anymore. You can click a button and people will shop for you and you can just drive there and pick up your groceries. And in some stores, they'll even bring it out and put it in your car. It's crazy. And if you can't find it at the grocery store, you can pretty much order anything you want at the click of a button, and in two days, it'll be at your front door. Let's talk about leisure time for, for a minute. You know, you don't have to set aside an hour or two every week on a certain night to watch your favorite show, because you can just watch it whenever, wherever, pause it, no commercials, binge watch entire seasons. The future has all of this. If someone came and told us that, you know what we would have probably said, or what we would have thought? What am I going to do with all my extra time? What am I going to do with all this free time that I have? I've got so much extra time. I might only be able to work like two or three days a week. It'll be great. I'll have a hobby. We'll go on vacations. I'll take naps during the day, like every day. I'm going to have so much time. That's not the world we live in, is it? If that's the world you live in, like invite me because that sounds great. I mean, technology and advancements could have done that, right? could have enabled, enabled us to do those things, but instead what seems like it's actually happened is the opposite. We're just busier than ever. We, we, we filled our time with just more stuff. Does this sound familiar to any of you, just like a run-through of my life, or, you know, it's get up, hit the ground running, get ready to, to get out the door. If you've got kids, get your kids ready, then you're out the door, and you're dropping your kids off of school, then you get to work, and work is slammed, and you're like, I don't even have time for lunch, so I'll just take and eat in lunch, and then the work day's over, and it's get the kids, and we've got practice, and we've got recital, and we've got banquets, and we've got a family thing going on. Sorry, no time for dinner. We'll go to the drive-thru. We'll eat on the run. Kids, we're not gonna have time to do homework at home. You better do it in the car. We get home. It's nine o'clock. Put the kids to bed, and it's like, oh, you know what? I didn't finish up work at home, so I've, let me pull that device out of my pocket. I'll I'll respond to emails for an hour. It's 10 o'clock. Let me watch a, an hour of TV, go to bed, exhausted, wake up, do it again and again and again and again. And we're just on the go all the time. When it comes to what, what we do with our time and what we do with our lives, so often there's two things. There's what's really important in life, and then there's the things that are urgent, that we think are urgent, or, or our culture tells us this is urgent. And so often we, we grab hold of the urgent and sacrifice what's most important. We're just busy. And, and before we go much further um, in this message, let me just kind of stop and say that for me, this is a huge struggle. Like, of, of the things that I struggle with in my life, this is right up there, at least in the top five, if not top three, if not maybe number one. And so many other terrible things in my life flow out of this because I do too much and I schedule too much and I take on too many things and I'm, I'm, then I'm just kind of grouchy and I'm irritable and I don't get stuff done. And it's just like, this is a struggle for me. 
I'm busy all the time. And some of you know this. A lot of you know this. Some of you are related to me and you know this. Some of you are in uh, my small group and like there's a group of us that at our small group, like before like we kind of get it, like we're just hanging out before and afterwards. There's a group of us just sit back and they're like, hey, how's it going? I'm busy, man. Oh, you are? Yeah, me too. What do you got going on? I got all these things going on. And we just, week after week, we're just like, we're so busy. We're so busy. And I'm like, so I know this is me. And I see some of you laughing right now, by the way. Don't think I don't see this, right? And so it's like, when, when it comes to a message like this, I just got to be honest and say I could either ignore it and pretend, I, I could lie about it and be like, I got it all together, at which point would make me a hypocrite and that wouldn't be good for you or me. We can ignore it and not talk about it, which again, wouldn't be good for you or me. Or I can say, hey guys, I'm bad at this and I have a feeling that a lot of you are as well. So let's work through it together. How do we get better at our time? There's three lies that we tend to believe that seem innocent but drive our time crunch. First one is this, that, that things will settle down someday. Things will settle down someday. Just things are, you know, it's, it's just a season. It's a busy season. Seasons have beginnings and ends, okay? If it's a busy season all the time, it's not a season. It's just your life. Things will settle down someday. It's true. Things will settle down someday, but when only one of two things happen. Things will settle down when you die, or things will settle down when you make an intentional decision to settle it down. And things will settle down if you don't make the intentional decision that when you die part actually comes a lot sooner. There's like research and studies that's like, hey, we are going at a pace that is not sustainable. Things will settle down someday. Second lie that we tend to believe is this, more will be enough. Just a little bit more. Just one more, one more achievement, a little more money, another vacation. I just work a little bit harder, but get another promotion. In my world, it says, if I can just get one more project done, okay, just, just a little bit more, then it'll be enough, then I'll be happy. We do this with our kids, or we'll let them do it. It's like a little bit more, if you can be involved in one more thing, you'll do what all your friends are doing, it's going to be great, and you're going to be happy. A little bit more, look better on a college resume, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. But the lie of more will be enough is this lie of, of an appetite, because it, an appetite for more, appetites are never fully or finally satisfied. Like, you know, you, you get hungry, you eat, guess what? You get hungry again. You're like me, it's like 20 minutes later. And you're like, what the heck, I just ate. And that's like our desire for more. It's like more is never actually enough. And the final lie that drives our busyness is everybody lives like this. It's just the reality. We're all busy. Now, I want to say two things about that particular lie. First off, even if it's true, that doesn't mean it's good. Like, there have been all kinds of things throughout human history that's like, well, this is what everybody does. And we look back and we go, no, that was awful. We shouldn't have done that. We shouldn't have thought that. And so, like, everybody lives like this. Okay, one, even if it's true, it's not good. And two, it's actually not true. Not everybody lives that way. There are some, like, when it comes to time and schedules and stress, there are some healthy people out there. And usually when you see them, you're like, that's weird. But then you're like, I kind of want it. Like, it's weird, and your life looks a little strange, but there's something about that that seems, that seems nice. So we, we believe these lies, and the reality becomes is, like, if we're busy all the time, if we are hurried all the time, as it intersects with what we're talking about in this series, we will never live the kind of lives that God has for us. We just won't. And we won't love God as we're called to love him, and we won't love people as we are called to love him, love them either. There's a pastor and author by the name of John Ortberg, and he talks about the idea of hurry sickness. That it's like, it, it's just like an infection in our culture that just spreads and there's all this hurry. And he has this, this quote that summarizes this so well. He says, love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible because love always takes time. And time is the one thing that hurried people don't have. Love takes time. 
Love moves at someone else's pace, not my own pace. And I think this is why, like, there's that famous verse in the Bible, the Apostle Paul, it's the love chapter, and starts off with, love is patient. Love slows down. Love's interruptible. Love and hurry are incompatible. So when it comes to living a life of love and living a life about loving our neighbors, we, we can choose love or we can choose hurry, but we can't do both. And it is actually a choice. Like, it, it, sometimes it seems like it's not. Like, it's just, ha- like, my life is just happening to me, and I, I, there's nothing I can do. I'm caught in this cycle, and it's go, 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 but it's a choice. I want to look at an encounter um, that Jesus has with some people um, today that, that really illustrates this. So this is found in the Gospel of Luke. We've got four accounts that tell us about the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, they all tell about Jesus, about his, his life, his death, his resurrection, this message that we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus and his kingdom. But they tell it from slightly different perspectives. They, they tell it to different audiences. They include different details. Uh, and Luke, in his gospel account, records this. In Luke 10, starting in verse 38, you've got a Bible, you can go there. It's going to be on our screens as well. We read this, that while they, this is Jesus and uh, his, his group that traveled with him, his disciples, and kind of a larger group as well. While they were traveling, he entered a village. A woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. And, and so we got a couple of sisters, and they're actually, uh, it's this family that Jesus is very close to. These two sisters, they have a brother named Lazarus as well. And we, we kind of discovered that Jesus is very close to them. They're followers of his, but they're, they're more than that. They're, they're, they're friends. They spend time together. They're an integral part of kind of his ministry. Uh, and, and he shows up at their house. Martha welcomes him into her home, and then Luke's like, I got to give you this little detail because it's going to kind of set up the tension in this account that Mary's there as well, but while Mary's just kind of, she's just relaxing, it seems like, or at least we would read it that way, kind of as modern people, that Mary sat at the Lord's feet. That phrase is is kind of a key to what this whole tension in this passage is going to be about, that Mary is sitting at the Lord's feet. Now, because we're, we're not like first century Jewish people in this context, we're like sitting at the Lord's feet, that's kind of strange. Like, I don't know about you, when I think, think this image of somebody sitting at someone's feet, it's just awkward. I think of like little kids sitting Indian style, right, on their little rugs. And so I just see Martha like sitting there, like staring at Jesus, like that's weird. Or how like kids are always at your feet, okay? And you're just like, they're like there, they're grabbing onto your legs, and you're like, go, like you're annoying me. And listen, okay, this is just confession time. If you're a parent, you're, you're, you've experienced this. Sometimes they're really close to your feet and you don't know they are and you accidentally like kick them. And you're like, oh gosh, I'm so sorry. I about plowed over Braxton the other day because he came up behind me and didn't know he was there. And I was talking to Christy and I turned around and it was just like, yeah, anyway. But that's not what Martha's doing, okay? She's not just being annoying there at Jesus' feet, or Mary, excuse me. That phrase, sitting at the Lord's feet, in this first century context, these are, these are primarily Jewish people that Jesus is talking to. That phrase instantly would have triggered an idea in their mind, and that's the idea of discipleship. Because disciples sit at the feet of their rabbi. To be a disciple is someone who, who sits at the feet of your rabbi, that sits at the feet of your teacher, that you take in everything that you are saying. And so Luke, as he includes this detail, would have been instantly recognizable to his original first century audience. What they would be hearing was, okay, Mary was taking the posture of a disciple. She was there with Jesus, with the other disciples, sitting, learning, and being with him. Now, this is an idea that would have been shocking 
And again, removed from the original context, we're like, okay, that's kind of cool, that's kind of interesting. But this is just one of many, many, many examples where Jesus shows up and, and he turns the world upside down. Like, yes, like Jesus comes to save us from our sins and, and give us new life and all that, and that's beautiful and that's true, but he came to flip everything on its head and introduce a brand new kind of kingdom, a kingdom in which people like Mary, which women, could be disciples. Because in this culture, women were not allowed to be disciples. Discipleship and being a student, being a learner, that was, that was for men. Jewish boys would, at a very young age, they would begin to learn, and they would go to the synagogue, and they would start to learn the Torah, and they would get all this instruction, and there would come like kind of, kind of a time where, where there would be like a cutoff, and they would determine, okay, some of you, you guys, you just don't have, you don't have, you know, you don't have what it takes, so you're just going to go back into the family business, you're going to be fishermen, you're going to be builders, you're going to be whatever, and for those of you that do have what it takes, you're going to continue on in this education, and you're going to be a disciple, you're going to have a rabbi, you're going to follow them, you're going to learn from them, and eventually you go down that path of you learn and you sit under your rabbi so that someday you then become a teacher or a rabbi yourself. That was a role that was reserved for, for men only. And Luke's like, yeah, but here's Mary. And that's what she's doing. She's a disciple of Jesus. She's sitting at his feet. She is learning. She, will, she is taking the posture of disciple who will one day herself be a teacher. It's sort of shocking to their culture. See, what, what the women were supposed to be doing in terms of their cultural context, was to be the hostess, to practice hospitality. When someone comes into your home, like this is Martha's home, when someone comes into your home, you, you, you were a good host, you made sure that they were taken care of and their needs were met, and you know, do you have the, the bowls and the towels and make sure the servants are getting them the things to wash their feet, and do you have food, and do you have water, and like, is it, are all the preparations made? That was their job. And that was normal, and that was acceptable. And this is where the tension comes in, because we discover that's exactly what Martha is actually doing. Martha was distracted by many tasks. And sometimes we read that and we're like, oh, you know, she, she kind of like, she was wrong or she didn't know what was going on. But in the, in the culture, like the context of that culture, the things she's distracted by, the many tasks are the things she's supposed to be doing. Jesus and all these disciples, she's got guests in her home, so she's doing the things she's supposed to do. She's getting stuff ready. She's making sure they're taken care of. She's got a lot on her plate. And you can just, I mean, some of you have been there because like when you go into we're hosting something, you go into we're hosting something mode and it's just like, choo, 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 like all over the house. Like everything's gotta be ready. Everything's gotta be ready. Okay. And it's like, you know, Martha is doing that because that's what she's supposed to do. That's not out of the ordinary. That's what's acceptable. And so she comes up and says to Jesus, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Go tell her to give me a hand. I'm doing what's expected of me. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and she's not. So tell her to come do what she's supposed to be doing. And Jesus and his response gives us such clarity around these things, of like what, around priority. What matters the most? What are the things that we should really be going after? The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried, you are upset about many things, but only one thing is necessary. And Mary has made the right choice. Mary's made the right choice. She's made the choice to sit at Jesus' feet, to take the posture of a disciple. I and mean, we can understand, we can see why Martha's so upset because, again, in her mind, her culture, everything that she's been told, that she's grown, that she's learned is like, this is what you're supposed to do, this is what you're supposed to do, this is who you're supposed to be, this is what you're supposed to do. And Mary is like, is just kind of bucking the system and saying, no, I'm going to do this other thing. And Jesus is saying, that's actually the more important thing. 
She's going against the cultural norm to choose what is more important. And as it relates to our time, as it relates to our priorities, the challenge is the same for us. We talked about at the beginning, the cultural norm is to be busy. The cultural norm is to like to cram my schedule so full of stuff and to be on the go all the time and to be involved in everything and have my kids involved in everything and just be stressed out and not sleeping. Like, like that's the cultural norm. It says you got to go. You got to hustle. You got to have a side hustle. You got to have two side hustles. You got to make, like, you got to do all of these things. Cultural norm is for us to be worried and upset about many things, to be stressed out to the max. And so we're presented kind of with these two sisters, and the question is then, okay, which one are we going to be like? Are we going to take the path of kind of what everyone expects, and no one's going to bat an eye? No one's going to be like, oh, you're busy all the time. That's terrible. It's like, no, it's just normal. Will we take that path? Or will we choose the better thing and sit at Jesus' feet and do the thing that is actually going to make people go, what's wrong with you? You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to live that way. You're not supposed to prioritize things like that. Well, we take the, the, the posture of, of Martha, and again, this is it's not like condemnation on Martha, because you can even see, hear the compassion in Jesus' uh, uh, answer, like, Martha, you're worried about so much. But, but th- this better thing, this one thing, it's open to you. It's available to you as well. But will we take that posture of, like, busy, distracted by many things, and going, Lord, Lord, like, like, she, like tell her to come help me. How often do we do that? we got so much going on, and we're like, Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, like, I'm so busy, I'm so stressed, i got all this going on, will you please help me? Jesus, give me strength, and help me to get through this, and make sure this thing gets done in time, and bring the right people in my life, and make the circumstances line up. I need you to do this for me, so that, so I can do the things that, that, that I'm expected to do, that the world expects me to do. Meanwhile, Jesus is going, I don't want to help you do the things that you think you need to do, or do the things that the world tells you you need to do. I want to give you a better thing. I want you to come and sit at my feet to be a disciple. And a disciple, it's really only a word that's ever used like in a church context, but it just means someone who follows. A disciple was someone who was, they were, they were said to be covered in the dust of their rabbi because they, they followed so closely that they got covered by their, their dust cloud. Who follows not just the belief and not just the, the, the teachings of their rabbi, but followed the way of their rabbi. It was, I want to be just like you. I want, I want to see how you do life and everything, and I, and I want to try to, to imitate that. And so if we're followers of Jesus, if we're disciples of Jesus, what does he model for us? What does he teach us? To love God and to love the people around us, to love our neighbor. But to do that and do that well, it's going to require us to prioritize some things and to discover what is the most important thing. It's going to require us to do something with our time Loving our neighbors means making the time to do so. We'll never have time to love our neighbors unless we make time to love our neighbors. It doesn't just happen. I think there's three things um, that we need to do as it relates to time so we can love our neighbors well. And there's three things because I'm a pastor and we have to like do things in sets of three like that apparently because it happens all the time. But there's three things. Number one is prioritize. I want to challenge you to take some time this week to reflect on what's most important in your life and then go a step further and actually schedule your life around those things. 
Because a lot of times what we do is like we can identify and we can say, hey, I know what's most important. I know where my priorities are. I know what I value the most. And we have that idea in our mind. We have those priorities, but then our time and the way we spend our lives don't reflect those priorities and there's this disconnect. And when there's that disconnect between I know what my priorities are, yet my life doesn't match up there, there's like just this, this kind of internal, internal turmoil that's like, what is going on? Something's not right. Reflect on what's most important and schedule around those things. And again, if you're a, a Christian or a follower of Jesus, we don't really get to, to choose or define what's most important. It's to love God and to love our neighbors. Now, that looks different in all of our lives based on what he's called us to and, and how he's wired us. We're going to love God and love our neighbors, and not, not just to say that, but to live it out practically, like asking the questions, what does it look like to love God and to love my neighbor? On my calendar, in my schedule, my day-to-day. Is there space on my calendar for connecting to God, right? I'm reading scripture, I'm, I'm praying, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm sitting in like some silence to hear from God. Is there space on my calendar to connect and to, to be a part of a church and do corporate worship and to serve people and to be uh, in community? Is there space on my calendar for other people and to love them well? With the caveat of other people who aren't just the people who are already a part of my life, the people who aren't maybe like my family, because sometimes we're like, yeah, I'm loving people, but I'm like, if all the people that you're loving are related to you, that might be a little bit of a red flag. I'm not saying you shouldn't love your family. We absolutely should, but we also shouldn't idolize family either. The reality is if we don't set um, our priorities and schedule our priorities, someone else will for us. Like a friend, your family, your work, just the culture in general, someone is going to set your priorities for you, so it might as well be you. So the first thing we gotta do is prioritize time. Second thing is just eliminate some things. We gotta eliminate the things in our lives that steal time or just reduce it. Um, Like, because there are things in life that are just sucking the time away from us, and they're not things that are evil, right? Sometimes you get kind of crazy on the extreme fringes of, of, of like the Christian faith, and it's like, no, everything that's is, it's, it's evil, right? It's like, no, there's some things that aren't necessarily evil, but they're just, they're kind of useless, and they keep us from living the life that, that God wants. And, and I don't think it, you know, it takes a genius to identify maybe what most of that revolves around in our culture right now. It's the devices that we carry around in our pockets. And again, they're not evil. They're not awful and terrible and they're tools, but how are we using them or are they using us? The latest data I could find was the average American spends a little over seven hours a day in screen time. And that's not like work-related stuff. That's just, you know, that's just pulling it out, look social media and streaming and surfing the web and it's like, yeah, seven hours a day. About two and a half hours a day of that, as you can probably guess, are social media. Again, I'm not anti-social media, I'm on social, but man, two and a half hours a day? If you multiply that out, it's about six weeks every year. What could you do with an extra month and a half this year? How could you love your neighbors? How could you do that thing that you've been wanting to do and you're like, man, I just don't have time for that. I don't have time to get in shape. I don't have time to, uh, to, to, to pursue that degree. I don't have time to start that, that business that I've always wanted to do. Like, man, over a month every year? Sometimes we've got to eliminate some things that are just reducing the time that we have. Sometimes we've got to eliminate, even, even this, this is hard, because sometimes you've got to get rid of some good things so you can say yes to some great things. Like sometimes there's things and there's opportunities that are awesome, but we just got to say no to some stuff. Like you got to say no to some opportunities to be involved in everything, community events and involvement. Like that's a big one for me because it's like I, I get asked to be like, hey, can you be on this board and come to this team meeting and do this committee and come to this event? And it's like I am a people pleaser by nature. So I'm like, yes, absolutely. I'd love to. 
And I just got to learn the habit of saying no. Sometimes that's, and those, are, those aren't bad things. Those are good things. We've got to learn to say no. Sometimes it means learning to say no. And, and this is something that, that Christy, my wife, and I, we've, we've been, we're not great at, but we've been developing over time and working on it. Sometimes it means saying no to some things that seem really important, like, like family stuff sometimes, like family events and family dinners. Sometimes we're like, no, we're not going to be at that one. You know, we go to all the major ones and the main holidays and stuff. It's like, we're not going to make a commitment to go to every cookout and every birthday party and everything because, again, our time is limited. If I say yes to all of that, what am I saying no to? Sometimes, for those of us that are parents, this means we're going to say no to our kids being involved in some things. Like, look, you're not going to be involved in everything all the time. And that's hard. So uh, you may not know me that well. Like my, my wife and I, like we were big into sports. We played sports all through school. Love it. I hope our kids do as well. I think you learn some great lessons. And if they want to do that, great. But man, they can't be involved in 87 different leagues throughout the year where it's like we're going, 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 going all the time. And it's like we're never home. We're doing these things. And none of those are bad things. But it's about priority. We've got to be willing to eliminate some things. Prioritize, eliminate, and finally... Uh, the last thing is just interrupt, be interruptible, be willing to be interrupted. Jesus is such a beautiful example of this. When you read through the Gospels, every time like Jesus is going somewhere, he's on the move, he's got a destination in mind, over and over and over again, he's stopped by people. And, and he has compassion and he's moved to act on their behalf. There's a, there's, a, there's a time where Jesus is like teaching, he's preaching and ow. There's some friends, that, there's some guys that have a, this, this friend who's paralyzed and they lower him down through a roof like right in front of Jesus and he's like, okay, I'm going to stop whatever I was teaching about. I want to take the time to heal this guy and forgive his sins. There's a time where there's a blind guy on the side of the road crying out like, have mercy on me, have mercy on me as they're, they're walking along and Jesus stops and heals him and, and his disciples meanwhile are like telling him, hey, be quiet, be quiet, we don't have time for you. There's times when kids come up to Jesus and, and kids in that culture were like, yeah, whatever, they're kids, nobody cares, they, they may not even survive and so the disciples are like, leave Jesus alone, he's too important, he's too busy. He's like, no, let them come to me. I have time for them. One of the most famous times is Jesus is on his way to, to heal uh, the, the, the daughter of this uh, official. His name is Jairus. And on the way, there's this woman who's been bleeding for years and she stops to touch his robe so he'll be, she'll be healed. And he stops and he's like, let me have this interaction with you. I have time for you. Like Jesus lived this beautiful life of saying like, I'm willing to be interrupted by people because you, you are not an interruption you are a person who is, who is worthy of my time, who is worthy of love, and love can't be hurried. We need to learn to see, to change from seeing things as interruptions in life to invitations. It's not an interruption. It's an invitation to love my neighbor. It's not an interruption. It's an invitation for God to do something through me. It's not an interruption. It's an invitation for God to do something in me. It's an invitation. And so as we kind of think about this, I just want to end with a question. To ask this question, do I live at a pace that allows me to be available to those around me? Do I live at a pace that allows me to be available to the people around me? 